0: Like I've spoken too many times, where uh, the first thing I say if I come out all hot and excited, I'm like, "Whoa, what's up?" And like the sound's all off, and then everybody gets, you know, their ears blown out first thing. So I've learned to try to come out a little bit more subtly. (laughs) So hopefully everything's good. Um, Well, I'm sure excited to share this morning uh, out of Isaiah. We're going to be looking from where Jordan left off, Isaiah 28 and 29, Um, and then we're going to move forward. Uh, Isaiah 35 is where we're going to be focusing on mainly. But we're gonna do a little survey of uh, 32 through 39. That's kind of the ending of what we would call this, like, first little section of uh, Isaiah, where it's mainly dealing with Assyria before it starts to flip over and deal with Babylon. Um, so let's just look at a preview here. I think I'm trying to click it. On, oh, yay! All right, sweet. So we'll look at preview. So I'm gonna. Um, I haven't preached out of prophecy that much, so I'm welcome to your guys' feedback after the message on uh, what you like about it. But I want to talk a little bit about the historicity of Isaiah, uh, specifically because right in this section of Isaiah 35, uh, we're going to talk about the next narrative section of Isaiah. Isaiah has three major narrative portions that break it up, and there's a narrative portion from 36 to 39 that deals with the prophecies that were right before it. So I feel like it it really, especially as I was studying these passages, uh, Isaiah 35 particularly, but all the surrounding ones, it really strengthened my faith a lot when I saw the intertextuality of Isaiah uh, from 30 to 31, 32, 35, and then I saw the narrative play out with 36, 37, 38, where I'm like, oh, this is what he meant there, and this is what he meant there, and it was really encouraging to my faith. So I just kinda wanna walk you through a little bit of that journey um, and then we'll focus on Isaiah 35 um, and the remaining fulfillment of uh, things to come, uh, Jesus and the second coming and beyond, and um, relevantly to our lives, that uh, we should be empowered and, and, and our faith would be strengthened at the end of this message, that we'd have a love for scripture, uh, we'd be excited for the return of Christ, uh, and that we would grow confident in, in awaiting his return in our lives today. So those are kind of the three main things that we're doing this morning. So last week, Isaiah 28 and 29 was God's woes to Israel and Judah for ignoring him over and over and over, and then their pending destruction. God's sending Assyria. He's sending Assyria, um, but then he's going to save Judah. Israel's already gone, but Judah he is going to save from there. Um, Isaiah 30 and 31. You have uh, two more woes to uh, to Judah for asking for help for Egypt. So this is historically true, and this is what was really cool in finding Isaiah is that when we read the Bible, sometimes it's so back there we're like, oh, this is just a story, like you know, I don't, I don't, it doesn't relate to me at all. But I'm like, as I was reading this, like this actually happened we have historical record both in the Bible and outside of the Bible of the Assyrian siege on Judah and how they took over Israel and it was under the reign of Sennacherib and then he went to go attempt to take Jerusalem when Hezekiah was king and he failed and like this is true outside of the Bible as well like we know this happened historically and it was really neat to see prophecies that Isaiah wrote before this happened and then to see it play out for uh for Jerusalem, for Hezekiah, for them. And then also it's going to go beyond. There's this thing about prophecy that we know of uh, through the teachings of Jesus that the prophecy um, prophesies for who it's about. And it's still a future prophecy. They're like, Hey, why are you hiding from the Egyptians? I mean, you're you're getting the help from the Egyptians. The Assyrians are going to come and take over. And this is still future prophetic word for them in their time. And then there's also coming like Isaiah 34, 35, and you guys have already seen a lot along the way, Isaiah 11, and many other things where it's like, that's also not fully here yet either. We're still waiting for the future, future prophecy of that to be fulfilled. Um, Jesus talks about that in his fulfillment when he reads the scriptures and he reads Isaiah, right? And he says, the uh, uh, eyes will receive their sight and the lame will walk and the, the prisoner will be set free. And they says, today this has been fulfilled. Well, they weren't realizing it like that. They weren't seeing Jesus as a fulfillment of prophecy. Like, if it was just prophecy for them back then, Jesus is showing them how all these Old Testament scriptures are actually applying to Jesus and how the Jews lost sight of it. Like, when I went on a trip to Israel, uh, the main thing, they actually had a Jewish speaker on saying, Why we don't believe Jesus is the Messiah? Like, why don't we believe that? That's the difference, right? We believe Jesus was the Messiah the Bible spoke about. Well, the reason they don't is because they look at the Messiah in the scriptures and they see the change that's going to happen to the world, the change and all the good things and all the things. And they say, well, Jesus came and went and it still looks like this. So how could he be the Messiah we're waiting for? And so when Jesus came, he had to explain to them, I'm fulfilling it, but not all the way. Like I'm coming back. And when I come back the second time, that's when I'm gonna really change it up, and he had to walk him. If you remember Luke 24 on the road to um, Emmaus, and all the other scriptures where in, in the New Testament it says they didn't realize what Jesus was talking about until after he rose again, and then they were like, "Oh, that's what he meant." It's gonna be the same thing, I think, when Jesus comes the second time. He's gonna come the second time. He's gonna be like, "Hey." this was about that, this was about that, this was about that, this was about that, and we're going to go, oh, here's all this Old Testament scripture that we weren't really looking for, but here, there it is, you're coming back again, and so some of it's really obvious, like, I think 34, Isaiah 34 and 35 are there, Um, but there's, I think there's going to be so much more, where Jesus is going to open our eyes to the scriptures on what's to come, and I'm so excited for that, Um, and then we get to some scriptures about uh, Israel, uh, Judah's cry for help from God, and there's this, this coming new king, new king in 32, 33, and then God's extreme judgment on the nations. And this is the, some of the verbiage there is where we're like, this isn't really like just talking about Assyria Judah here. Like we're kind of moving into serious destruction of the world and serious restoration of the world, um, which is where most scholars and, and, I think mean, just it pretty clearly means this is coming for when Jesus comes a second time, um, which we'll get into. So let's talk about God's charge against uh, Judah. Jo- God's charge against Judah, why he's upset with them. Uh, Assyria is right around the corner, and he says one of these woes. I think he says six of them. Five of them are for Judah, and one of them's for Assyria. The six and final one for Assyria. But woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who go look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge, but Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials in Zoan and their envoys have arrived in Hanes, Everyone will be put to shame because of people useless to because of a people useless to them who bring neither help nor advantage but only shame and disgrace. And this is historically true I mean this is what Assyria says the gods like upset with Judah for looking to Egypt to, to help them run from Assyria. And Assyria says this too in, in Sennacherib's prison. He's like, they went, and they went and tried to get the help from Egypt. Are you kidding me? Like he was this huge, massive king. And God's like, you guys went to go get the help from Egypt? Are you kidding me? Like there's this huge charge against them for doing this. And we know this is also, so here's God's like frustration with them. And then it's also historically true. And it lines up with the narrative of chapter 36. It was so neat. So then here's, uh, in, verse, in chapter 31, it echoes that same idea, his frustration of you're looking to Egypt. You keep looking to Egypt. And then he says this, "'Return, you Israelites, to the one you have so greatly revolted against. For in that day, every one of you will reject the idols of silver and gold your sinful hands have made. Assyria will fall by no human sword.'" A sword not of mortals will devour them. They will flee before the sword and their young men will be put to forced labor. God's like, look, I'm not gonna let Assyria win here This in this time. I'm not going to. And I love like, if we're just to principalize something from this passage real quick, like how many times in our lives, I wonder would God say, look, you are doing this. This isn't lining up with my plans for you. You're doing this thing and then you're just covering it up with sin after sin after sin. Like you got into trouble doing something you shouldn't have done, and you're forming an alliance you shouldn't form an alliance with because you're just trying to deal with the problem that just happened when we just, just come right to me. Just run to me. That's all I want you to do. All your sinfulness and all your self, I give you salvation. God gives you salvation. I mean, if we're just going to take a, a minor principle out of the teachings of the, of the people of Judah— when we do something wrong, like run to the Lord, return to the Lord. Don't revolt against him. Don't get help from an outside source. Go straight back to God. He asks us to. Right, so here's his, that's his frustration with, uh, with Judah. Their stronghold will fall. Because, oh, this, he's still talking about um Assyria. Their stronghold will fall because of terror at the sight of the battle standard. Their commanders will panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So God's saying, I'm going to make a stand at Jerusalem. Like I'm, that's where I'm, that's my place and they're going to run away. And so let's look at this Uh, in the narrative, if you're for your own study time, please, please go do this and just go get fascinated with scripture. Um, Isaiah 36, 37, and then go look up Second Kings 18 and 2 Chronicles 32. Like, those are all coupled narratives, different sources, different periods of time, and they tell the same story, and it's just so cool. It's so fascinating reading it. I just loved it. So this is the report in Isaiah, of uh, Sennacherib's siege on Jerusalem. Like I said, there's partner um, texts in 2 Kings 18 and 2 Chronicles 32. So in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So he, in this, again, he, in his in Sennacherib's prison, he goes over all of his conquests. He goes over his first uh, conquest, the second one, and all these things, and, and he talks about taking over these things, how he got all the way up to Jerusalem. He took over all the parts of Judah. He got major fortified cities, uh, and then they run to Egypt. And he talks about that to Sennacherib's thing, talk, talks about uh, Judah running to Egypt and how he just blew them away too. Um, we know this is true. He attacked the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, when the commander stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. <clears throat> the fuel commander said to them, now listen to these words and just look at the, the blaspheme. And last week, Jordan talked about types of people, right? The, the, the Bible was describing these people types. These people have no regard for the holiness of God. They have no regard for the respect. They don't, they just, their arrogance is, and God is going to cut them down. And like, just listen to the way the king of Assyria talks about Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and see how God responds. It's really amazing. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? Uh, Chronicles gives more clarification about that. It says Hezekiah went and fortified Jerusalem after they got the help of Egypt, and they were confident they weren't going to get Jerusalem. Like, so that's what he's, that's the confidence he's talking about. He says, you say you have uh, counsel and might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leads on He's like, look, Egypt is so small compared to me that, like, if I were to grab it, it's like all I'm worried about is getting a splinter. That's it, uh, which was true at the time. Uh, Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on Yahweh, our God. Isn't that the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? So remember, this is where king after king, if you go back to Chronicles and Kings, king after king, it says they went in the way of their fathers, which is bad. Or it'll say they did what was right in the Lord, and they took the high places down, and they restored the land. So you have these series of kings that do good things and bad things, and Hezekiah is a good one. He's the one who takes the high places down. And so uh Sennacherib's laughing at him. He's like, isn't this like the one who the things t- just go up and down and up and down? And like, this is the one who you're telling me that you're worried about? This is who you're going to request for help? He's like, hey, let's make a bet. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses, which was a highly coveted war tool, right? 2,000 of them. If you can even put riders on them, how then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without Yahweh? Yahweh himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Now, that's not, like, it's true, like, theolo- theologically that is true, but not literally. Uh, he's using this as an insult, being like, hey, your God told me to come beat you up. Like, it's, he's, he's just throwing shade. That's all he's doing. But little does he know, like, theologically, we knew we knew this year, God was actually leading the Assyrians to do this. Um, but here he is just disrespecting God. All right. Completely disrespecting Yahweh, saying, What what are you guys? What is Egypt gonna do about it? What is Yahweh gonna do about it? I'm rolling. Like I'm about to go and do all these things. All right. So then we get to Isaiah 37, which is it's that skips a little bit in the narrative, but it's Hezekiah's response. And so then it says, When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah Isaiah said to them, tell your master, this is what Yahweh says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, when he he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country. And there I will have him cut down with the sword. Now, this is true. This happened. There was a report that happened that I believe Historians think it was Babylonian uprising somewhere, and they actually went away. They did not siege Jerusalem. Um, and also, Sennacherib is recorded of 20 years or so after this, he was killed by the sword, assassinated by one of his own sons. Like, so here is prophetic words from God that ended up coming to pass historically with the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. Pretty amazing stuff. Um, but and then here is Yahweh's prophecy against Assyria. All right? I love this. Uh, virgin daughter Zion despises and mocks you. Daughter Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Here's what he's saying: the most innocent type of person in this day and age, uh, back then, you know, uh, and a small young woman, like like uh, not even aged of marrying or anything. She's horse laughing the king of Assyria, pointing and laughing and rolling their head as he runs away. That's the image that God is giving to the king of Assyria. Who is it that you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? It's against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers, you have ridiculed the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots, I have ascended to the heights of the mountains and utmost heights of Lebanon. I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choicest of its junipers. I have reached its remote Heights that finest of its forests. I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the sides of my feet, I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. So there's like the arrogance of the king of Assyria. Have you not heard long ago? I ordained it. This is God talking again. Have you not heard long ago? I ordained it. In days of old, I planned it. How I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified city fortified cities into piles of stone. They're people drained of power. They are dismayed and put to shame. They're like uh, plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof that is so small for me, <laughs> scorched before it grows up. But I know where you are when you come up and go and how you rage against me. Because you rage against me and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and bit in your mouth and I will uh, make you return by the way you came. Let me just give you the imagery here that's happening. God's like, look, you're in charge. You're in the world right now. I ordained that. I, I, that was long planned ago. Before you were even around, I planned on this whole movement of things. The nations you've rolled, I let that happen. The piles of stone that they run away and stuff like that. He's like, but now that you're saying you, you're going against me, well, guess what? I'm going to put my hook in your nose and my bit and just turn you right around. Like this this is the power of our God. This is our God. He controls the nations There is nothing stronger than him at all through history and today. We can have so much confidence in the strength and the power and sovereignty of God. Always. It's amazing. Then the angel, and then this is going back to um, the narrative. So then the angel of Yahweh went out and put to death... 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were all dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day while he was worshiping in the temple, his god Nisroch, his sons at and Sherazar killed him with the sword and they escaped to the land of Ararat and Esarhaddon, his son, succeeded him. Now this is, again, historically true outside of the Bible as well. Like just... Really, really amazing stuff, and so I just wanted to go over that because I was so amazed at the intertextuality of Scripture and its historicity, and I just I really want you guys to love the Word of God and to see the inter- interconnectedness and to go and get lost in Scripture. I'll come back to that in a little bit, but I just, I hope that was valuable for you, getting to see, like, how it just, it goes back and forth, and there's prophecies and the narrative about it happening, and then we know it actually happened, and it's just really neat. I, I was so blessed, studying this stuff. So going into Isaiah 35 now, uh, 34 and 35 still relate to God's judgment over Assyria and his restoration of Israel. But if you read it, when we read it together, listen to how much more so it sounds than just the, than just the immediate salvation of Judah. It sounds so much more, uh, such a further prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled, even for our time, even post-Jesus. Jesus Jesus was a glimpse of, of the healing that he brings and what we are to be bringing to our world. But it wasn't the ultimate ending of it. Um, So, yeah, it transcends the time of the Israelites in the Old Testament. Jesus incarnate was a glimpse and it has yet to be fully completed. Isaiah 35, so it's really focusing on um, just the, the imagery of the peace and state of the world. The desert and the parched land will be glad the wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will br- burst into bloom. It will rejoice gladly, or greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of Yahweh, the splendor of our God. So here's the image. Now, I would highly encourage you, go read chapter 34 and 35 like right next to each other because 34 is utter devastation, terrifying, God-wrath, and then 35 is this, like the, the change. And I, I love the, comp- the compare and contrast. Highly encourage you to. So there's just, imagine this this desert land. Desert, barren, wasteland, arid, no life. And here you have a bunch of these things growing from it. This is what the imagery is. Just beautiful flowers coming out. And there's land that is nothing, nothing. Uh, And then all of a sudden it gets the glory of Lebanon. I mean, these cedars are amazing. These cedars are so beautiful. This is what Lebanon was known for, was all their amazing cedars. Or like we're in the Pacific Northwest. It would be like the Sahara Desert will become like the ranging mountains around Mount Hood. Like, you know, we get that kind of that imagery. Just complete restoration of land. Like there there would be no sign of life, there is now life. And again, just to principalize this, how true it is when we hear and receive the word of God and we love Jesus Christ. We were unable to do anything good. We hated God. We hated, uh, we hated righteousness. And Jesus saves our soul and turns us into a new being, a new life, where instead of a barren desert, we are a source of life to the world. Thanks be to Jesus Christ who saves us. In the same way that he does it with us individually, he will do this with us globally. Um, with this church. Uh, and we show here, that scripture shows, I mean, the planet's waiting for this to happen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For Uh, The creation was subject to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have been the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Like we know the world is just, we're wrong. We're waiting. We're waiting. And Isaiah 35 gives us what that's going to look like. That the barren wastelands will be restored. There will be goodness to the world. Let's keep going in Isaiah 35. He charges us saying, strengthen the feeble hands. Steady. Steady. The knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong. Do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. That phrase comes up a lot. I'm only going to point out a couple of them. Um, but that phrase, divine retribution, that God's going to come with vengeance. So if you go back and read 34 and 35, you'll see why the people would be afraid. Because, well, I'll, I'll show you actually a little bit of it. So Isaiah 34, to contrast why the people would be afraid when saying, why do you have weak hands and feeble knees? Don't worry, God's on your side. God's on your side. This is why you would be kind of terrified, or they would be kind of terrified. Come near you nations and listen. Pay attention, you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world, and all that comes out of it. Yahweh is angry with all the nations. His wrath is on all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will stink. Their mountains will be soaked with their blood. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll and the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom, Edom, which is like a type for just all nations not... Not un- under Jesus, not under God. Use people I have totally destroyed. Uh, the people I have totally destroyed. The sword of Yahweh is bathed in blood. It is covered with fat. The blood of lambs and goats, fat from the kidneys of rams, from or for Yahweh has a sacrifice in Batra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. And the wild oxen will fall with them. The bull calves and their great bulls, their land will be drenched with blood and the dust will be soaked with fat for Yahweh has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution or a year of recompense to uphold Zion's cause. So again, not only was this true partially for when he demolished Assyria and stopped them from taking over Jerusalem, but, but there's this crazy judgment that's going to happen over the whole world. We call it now, we call it the tribulation, but like there is a day coming when God's going to bring the pain for those who are not on his side it's going to happen we know this is going to happen here's an Old Testament prophecy of it we have New Testament prophecies of it like we know Jesus is coming back to set all things right in revelation twenty two he says that I'm coming back soon with recompense for to account for everybody to for, for all people to account of what they've done like we know Jesus is coming back with recompense and vengeance and It's going to happen, and then he's going to restore all things. So Matthew 24 says, this is where I was reading this. uh, Sorry, Connie, to make you go back to this. But um, where he says, Um, all the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. And I was like, well, that sounds familiar. Where was that again? Why does this seem post-apocalyptic, right? Immediately, this is uh, Jesus answering his disciples. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. The heavens, the power of great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds and uh, from one end of heaven to the other. So we have this day coming where Jesus is. the sky is going to go out, and Jesus is going to be coming back. Uh, and then all these amazing things are going to happen. There's going to be judgment on those who don't follow, but then restoration for those who do. So then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and a mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. I mean, just try to really put your mind around the imagery there. That there's no more blindness, no more deafness. The people who can't walk right are leaping up and about. Where was there a wilderness and barrenness, there's water and streams. Just a full flip of desolation to life and restoration. The burning sand will become a pool the thirsty ground bubbling springs and the haunts where jackals once lay, gray uh, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. This is in con- contrast to 34 where he says where there were people, now there's just going to be wild animals running around. There's going to be jackals and owls and ostriches. There's going to be all this just wildness. Not, there's going to be so little civilization. There's just going to be animals. And then here he's saying once there was there, now we have life and lushness and growth and restoration. Uh, And then just to look at more intertextuality, this is not new to Isaiah. Here's Isaiah 11, which uh, I think Drew covered this. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Oh, Oh, that's all right. (laughs) The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. So again, here's just another picture in Isaiah of the time to come. There is a time coming when all things are good, when all things are right, when all things are peaceful. No more bloodshed, no more sickness, no more pain, no more anything and God gets to rule in a good and holy way Isaiah 35. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. I think partially this has partially been fulfilled. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go on it. When Christians first became Christians, they called their way of following Jesus the way. And we have some people, we have us now following the way of Jesus, but yet there's going to be this future time where it's more so fulfilled. So we're in this like limbo state now of getting to follow Jesus in this way, but it's going to be even more fulfilled uh, when time goes on. No lion will be there on this road, the way, nor any ravenous beast, they will not be found there. And I was like, why does that mean no lion will be there? But if you were to, like, we were hanging out after church today, and you're like, hey, just come over to my house. You just walk, you know, take a walk down Burnside, and then you just make a ride on 133rd. But when you walk down 133rd, like, just be careful. There's lions there. So just, like, walk quickly, you know, then maybe, uh, you, then I'd be like, hey, I got an idea. Let's come over to my house because there's no lions there, right? So, like, this is what he means in Isaiah 35. He's like, there's this road to walk on, and there's, there's nothing to worry about. There's nothing, there's, it's just safe. It's peaceful. In times of, you know, the 2020, are you like, this is what we need to hear more than anything, is there's a time coming of peace. There's a time coming of goodness. There's a time coming where God restores everything. I can't wait. And those who Yahweh has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. They run away. No more sorrow. No more sadness. No more sighing. No more suffering. No more... Last, lastly, before we get into this, um, some uh, recaps, Connie, would you mind opening up? Thank you so much. Then I saw Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them." They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, no mourning or crying or pain. for The old order of things has passed away. I can't wait until that day comes. Let's get into some applications of how this week could be different in light of these things. Um, I mean, my first suggestion would be just to immerse yourself in the scriptures. I had just so much fun studying this and prophecy is hard and just reading it and looking at the textuality and the intertextuality Like get a study Bible and give yourself time. Like, why don't you this week just try to set aside like 30 minutes not to read the Bible as a checklist because you know you're supposed to do it. Like, but allowing yourself with the intention of, I want to get lost in scripture for just like 30 minutes, like an hour, whatever. I'm going to just read. And when I look at my footnotes and it says, this is about that, like, go chase that thing and go look at the word, this thing that says, oh, this is close to this. Go look at that. And like, just allow yourself to love God's word. And pray and pray as you read, that you would just fall in love our, uh, Jordan talked about last week, our command is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And the Bible's a story, not a manual. It's a story. Like go and fall in love with it so you can learn to see what God is like, the character of God, which Jordan's going to talk about next week, which I'm super excited about. Isaiah 40. I, mean, I can't wait to talk about the character of God. Like, go get lost in the word. Go get lost in the word this week. Right, please. Do that. Uh, second thing is, I'm, I'm just going to use it straight from Isaiah 35. Strengthen your feeble hands and knees that give way through confidence in God. We have feeble hands. We have things that we're scared of. It's 2020. We're scared of COVID. We're scared of disease. We're scared of presidential elections. We're scared of who knows what. I mean, 2020 has been insane. And yet, we have examples of scripture. Hey, strengthen your hands and give uh, and strengthen your knees that give way. <clears throat> Uh, talk about the return of Christ. So scripture, there's like 25 major passages in the Bible that talk about the return of Christ. And there's like over a hundred just like What's the word I'm looking for, like things that like talk about that it's gonna happen. There's like 20 major ones and then there's like over 100 ones that are, it's all over. It's almost in every single book of the New Testament. The second coming of Christ, the return of Christ, wait till you come for the day of the Lord. Wait until this, you know, hold on tight or until God be with you until he comes. Like, I mean, so many references to it. I think our lives should be like that too. You know, I don't, I honestly don't think about Jesus coming back enough. I guess should be on the that should be something I think about and talk about every day. Every day I should be, you know, encouraging a brother or sister in Christ. Hey, we wait until the Lord come Lord's come back. He's coming back soon. Let's keep fighting the good fight. Keep fighting the good fight. He is coming back soon. Whether it's in our lifetime or not, it's still something that was true. It's going to happen. Encourage one another about the return of Christ. Talk about it this week. Text somebody this week. Brother, sister, love you so much. Fight the good fight. Jesus is coming back soon, All right? Talk about God's character often. Jordan's gonna do that next week. Talk about the goodness of God. Talk, tell stories to each other often of God's faithfulness and goodness. We should be a people who constantly remind ourselves of God and his plans and theology and his goodness and things that he's actually done in our lives and things that he's doing in our lives. I mean, talk about it, talk about it. Memorize scripture, you know, read and memorize and put it in your mind, uh, the goodness of God and that he's coming again, the truth of God. And lastly, influence your surroundings while we wait, right? We're not supposed to just hide until Jesus comes back. We're many Jesuses going about and Jesus influenced a ton of people. He healed many. He loved well and he gave his life up. And now we should have, we, now we have like 50,000, 100,000, a million Jesuses, like the world theoretically, the world should be insanely different for the positive, right? We have a bunch of mini Christs. So therefore, if we looked like Christ, then we would be making monumental changes for the goodness of the planet. So do it. Go out and have fun. Not to, I'm not trying to shame or anything. I, I, I absolutely have work to do. On. My flesh is very strong and my spirit is weak. I often lose and do what I want to do rather than what I ought to. But Think about it. Love others intentionally this week, intentionally, knowing that Jesus is coming back, knowing that you're on the winning side. When your co coworker mouths off, love them instead. Like you're on the winning team. Love them, love them instead. Go and think about what somebody has said to you that they need something and buy it for them or something like that. Like think of something intentionally out of your way to love somebody. Pray for people regularly, pray for others, especially the people that you don't like. It will melt your heart for them when you're praying good things in their life when you're praying for God to bless those who frustrate you or persecute you. It melts your heart and helps you love them more don't just oh preach the gospel to somebody, go and tell somebody about the love of Jesus, how it affected your life some you know challenge yourself who can I show and who can I tell about jesus and don't just hold on and wait until Jesus comes back, get out there and love the unloved um, that, you know, we're not here just to hide and hope that he comes back soon. Like, we're influencers in the meantime. In the meantime, we're making the world like he made the world. Like, he want, that he's going to make the world. We're supposed to give a glimpse of what the world will look like when he comes back. So when people come back, they're not confused. They're like, what is, what is all this good stuff? Where has this been? And they should be like, oh, that's what my coworker was doing that whole time. You know, like, there I see. Uh, that's, that's, that's the goal. So I'm going to pray for us. Um. And uh, yeah, I just I love this scripture. I can't wait, Heavenly Father. Thank you so much that you are coming again. Forgive us for all the times that we forget that, and that we go and turn to other things like the Israelites did, and we turn to things that aren't part of your plans. And we're just trying to we heap sin upon sin as we try to cover up and fix what we've done. And yet you're just offering us to come back to you. Forgive us for when we don't do that. Make it clear to us. Help us love one another well to restore our hearts back to you. Thank you that it's true that you're coming back. Thank you. Uh, Help us to encourage one another often of your return. To eagerly and excitedly await the return and salvation of the world. Uh, through your second coming and also not to be afraid of your judgment when they come for it will be those again it will be against those who are not on your team and we pray for their souls uh, that you would have mercy on them and we know that you're not coming back yet for the sake of um, those who you have called your scriptures make it very clear but but lord we do want you to come back soon can't wait till you set all things right and we pray for the people in this room uh, that you would love them this week and that we would think of you Often, in Jesus' precious name, amen.